2: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
1: Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and it is a fine Friday morning. In fact, a lot better than last Friday morning because that was very hot. Um, So in the studio, um, we have myself, Jacob.
3: And me, Zane. Hello.
1: So, yeah, it has been quite a big week in terms of political developments, or at least politics in um, Australia. We've got a pretty packed program today. We're going to be interviewing a number of people um, about covering the sort of different sort of campaigns and um, topical kind of issues that are kind of happening today. One of those being the very measly sort of job seeker increase that was announced by the coalition. In, in theory, it's not really an increase. It's actually more like a decrease because this is basically just an increase on the old rate and a reversal of the COVID supplement rate that has been, um, that has been implemented since last year and has been gradually kind of dropping. And then we've also going to be covering the refugee rights campaign. And of course, last week we had a bit of an intensive kind of discussion on the whole Facebook news ban. Now, I can announce to you, if you haven't gone on Facebook this morning, Facebook has restored, uh, news, uh, to, um, for Australian users. So, yeah, you can now post articles, you can now post free CR, uh, links, um, on Facebook again. But we're going to be having a deeper discussion about the implications of the passing of the media code uh, with Zebedee Parks, um, who is going to probably, um, who's going to be kind of our first interview for the program. But I guess before I get into the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wondry land of the Kulin Nation, um, acknowledge that this always was. Always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty um, was never ceded. And of course, Free CR and Green Left Radio will always um, unconditionally support um, the Aboriginal struggle and the fight for land and sovereignty treaty and justice.
3: Always was, always will be
1: Aboriginal land. Okay, so now, got um, just to cover, I guess to. what is kind of like the first sort of headline news story you're interested in sort of covering for this part of the program, um, Zane? Uh,
3: so we're going to be talking to Sarah Hathaway next uh, week about this, but obviously a big story this week has been the uh, former Liberal staffer, Brittany Higgins, who has made an accusation that she was uh, raped by another staffer, which was... Um, not dealt with at the time, basically kind of swept under the carpet, and only now, a couple of years later, um, to her great credit, um, Brittany Higgins has had the courage to come forward and report that allegation. After there was obviously a lot of pressure for her to um, keep it quiet and um, you know not not talk about it in order to keep her job. Now there's a lot of factors at play. There, um, obviously, the big one is the ongoing nature of of sexism and patriarchy in capitalist society. Um, But within the Liberal Party, there's no gender balance. There's, There's a really small number of women. That number of women further reduced at the last election because after the ouster of Malcolm Turnbull... A bunch of women in the Liberal Party who had basically been part of the Turnbull faction were um, really crudely and viciously bullied by the um, the Dutton faction, and uh, have subsequently quit the party. Some others lost pre-selection. So there's a real issue of um, gender imbalance in the in the Liberal Party. A real. Culture of, of bullying and sexism that goes back many years, and it's kind of built into the DNA of the Liberal Party. And uh, this um, this allegation of um, assault is um, kind of a, a product of that of that toxic culture. So, yeah, it will be um, interesting to talk to to Sarah next week about the broader context there but uh, it's pretty obvious that the Liberal Party has failed miserably to create a culture in which women um, are able to do their job safely and free from fear of harassment and assault.
1: Yeah, and I think some of the responses from the politicians I, um, at the top to this has been, I think, very appalling, um, especially uh, Peter Dutton's responses, allegation and apparently... He, I don't know the kind of complete kind of mechanics of this. Apparently he was informed of this, but apparently had not passed it on to the prime minister because he said, quote unquote, it is an operational kind of matter. And then, of course, he then described the whole case as a he said, she said, which I just think is a completely appalling kind of comment. Um Basically indicates to me that, Peter Dutton actually doesn't take allegations of sexual assault very seriously, and in fact he's actually, through describing it in those terms, he is essentially downplaying it. But of course, I'm not necessarily surprised, uh, considering what Peter Dutton kind of does on a daily basis as the Home Kind of Affairs Minister, and previously the Immigration Minister in terms of his uh, appalling implementation of the offshore detention refugee policy. Hmm. Now, to me, I, but I think it is, it is one of the, the positive things that has come out of the Britney um, Higgins kind of case is that many women, um, are now coming forward and actually speaking out, uh, about the harassment and, about the harassment and, um, and potential sexual assault allegations, um, against, um, the perpetrator, uh, Against the original perpetrator. And of course, there's also been a recent report that, um, as a result of kind of Brittany Higgins speaking out about this, there's now more and more women within Canberra, in a general kind of sense, um, speaking, um, um, reporting their, their sexual assault, um, to the police. Now, of course, there's obviously, obviously issues with how police deal with domestic violence and, um, these kind of, Aces, But I think, you know, this is ultimately at least the fact that Brittany Higgins has been speaking out is, is empowering other women to speak out. But the experiences, I think, is overall a very positive kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I think another factor too, and Sarah Hathaway will be able to talk about this when we interview her next Friday, is there's no job security for political staffers at Parliament House. There's this system in place where political staffers are sort of basically sacked at the end of every federal parliamentary term and then rehired on a short-term contract. And then they're under probation to begin with. And it's basically, it's pretty easy to sack those people. They don't have much job security. So on top of the, basically the, the pressure, um, for, Women in, in a situation like Brittany Higgins to stay quiet. On top of the, the structural pressures and the, the immense difficulty of women in that situation to speak out full stop comes the additional pressure of there's no job security. There's no relevant union that I'm aware of. So it's very difficult for people in that situation. Who are faced with this <clears throat> choice between keeping their job and speaking up against a very serious assault that has been perpetrated on them in the workplace? It's very difficult for them to feel, um, you know, secure in in, in raising that um, that issue and and finding recourse and not just being, you know, sacked as part of the whole sweeping under the rug operation that. Uh, appears to be the the norm
1: yeah absolutely and i think there's um i think this also i think a lot of the cases this um this whole case actually kind of relates to kind of like the general kind of issue of harassment and sexism within the kind of workplace and the right for women to kind of have a safe workplace, free of harassment um, and so on. So I think it definitely, this is sort of like, I think pointing out all those kind of pressures that exist in this sort of context of being a parliamentary kind of staff, I think is very true. Now, I guess one, just one, um, before I guess we move on to our first interview, I kind of just wanted to um, segue into, I guess, another sort of... Um, headline news story, but which kind of just relates. I just want to make a kind of general kind of point because I, I guess this whole Brittany Hogan's kind of case, uh, no, sorry, not Brittany Higgins, I, uh, has sort of revealed, um, has been a bit of a PR kind of disaster for the federal government. And of course, the federal government, especially Scott Morrison is under particular fire. And of course, Scott Morrison has been trying to spin things, um, all sorts of different ways, like including saying that, um, oh, well, he was devastated by the news, et cetera, but, of course, not necessarily taking any real action other than sort of deferring, deferring things to certain reports or and so on. But what I sort of find interesting is um, right now the COVID-19 vaccine is now being rolled out in Australia, which is um, a, a very positive thing. But it seems to me, my impression is just from the news headlines that have been coming in and out has been that the government is trying to seize on every opportunity to use the delivery of the vaccine as a big PR job for, for promoting themselves. Despite the fact, because basically every week, um, they basically the first vaccine that were, um, that was, um, uh, not, um, done, um, Scott Morrison had to do a whole kind of media sort of, um, staging for the fact that he was receiving the vaccine too etc and I can kind of notice that from um, the mainstream media um, is going to go through this sort of media cycle of every week we're going to go and be hearing about how great it is that we're delivering this kind of vaccine program and it's just all going to be designed to prop up the kind of existing federal government despite the fact that the government has actually not done anything special. They haven't done anything different that um, the Labor Party wouldn't have done if they were input and power. They've simply just bought up all these vaccines and they're just, just getting government departments through a mix of private operators, et cetera, to deliver the vaccine. And, like, I don't think we should be applauding the government uncritically just because they're doing a basic thing, like delivering a vaccine that mm. every government is empowered to do around the world.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the complete incompetence of Trump, then it's kind of, wow, impressive compared to that. But actually, as you say, it's pretty sort of a standard, like a competent government should be able to carry out distribution of a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic. Like that's, that's your job.
1: Yeah. And there's all been these sort of funny reports around, um, the Liberal Party trying to kind of even brand the kind of vaccines as being liberal, as being part of the liberal Party, like there 's just all these sort of funny sort of
3: things the, the Menzies vaccine, yeah,
1: <laughs> and I imagine that this whole thing about how they delivered a vaccine is going to be a big thing if there's a potential federal election this year mm. anyway i don 't want to spend too much time on this because um, we 're going to be going into our first interview. So I'm going to just go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and it is 7:14 a.m. um it is 7:14 um, a.m. Um, on a Friday morning. Okay, play a quick announcement.
2: The Black
4: Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the
0: numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne.
4: It gives me the understanding that we will
2: win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021.
1: Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to
2: 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or call the station on nine four one nine eight three double seven.
0: Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programmes
1: every week. Including a diverse range of community language shows.
3: Come more 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe
4: now. الى إذاعة 3CR Community Radio. أرجاء الاشتراك الآن.
1: ungalin
4: 3CR Radio
3: Suscríbete
1: Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And we have our first guest on the line, um, Zebedee Parks. Um, he, Zebedee, um, Parks is a writer for, um, has been, um, is a journalist with Green Left and has been a long time kind of independent journalist and also filmmaker. In fact, he's directed, um, the documentary, um, My Friend in Detention. And we have him on the program today, um, To have a bit of a discussion about, I guess, the implications of the media code, um, that has just been, um, that has just been passed in the parliament. And of course, many of our listeners are probably aware, uh, the media code has, was, I guess, the kind of trigger, um, for Facebook basically removing all its news in, um, for Australian users in the past week. But there's also been a lot of discussion and debate around the media code. Um, some argue that the media code, as it's been kind of implemented, is just to prop up an old kind of dying media empire, um, which is the Murdoch kind of press. Um, but again, of course, then others kind of say that it is necessary to fund and diversify journalism, or i.e. compensate journalists for the real kind of value of their work. Um, so we have Zeb. Um, on to actually have a, re- a a kind of discussion from his perspective as a independent journalist. What does the the media code actually mean for for journalists, especially small um, pro- um, producers like the likes of Free C R, Green Left, etc. Um, so yeah, good morning, Zeb. Hi,
0: good morning, Jacob.
1: Yeah, so I guess I want to kind of hear, what is sort of your assessment and your sort of perspective on the media code, especially as it's currently being passed, as it has been passed and legislated in the Parliament?
0: Um, my text for the media code is, first, I feel that of an illogical piece of legislation that's basically asking people who are on Facebook to, like, Facebook to pay people who then go and post on Facebook. But, I mean, that kind of part aside... I mean to me the main issue is is that it's not doing anything to achieve what people say it's supposed to do of actually supporting journalism, supporting community media. There's nothing that I've seen in the code that will mean that there'll be grants given to the community media or money given to content creators or that it will reverse the cut support seven hundred million over the last several years to the ABC or anything like that. So in effect I can't see anything in it that will actually help to support journalism and support an independent thriving media.
1: Mm. And what in terms of, like, what has been the, the federal government... Because the federal government has been sort of trying to spin this sort of code as being putting a kind of um, actually compensating journalists for the work that they, they could do. But what is the actual kind of federal government's track record in terms of supporting independent media?
0: I mean, it's very poor. I mean, since 2014, there's been... More than 700 million in cuts to the ABC. We've seen the ABC and SBS gather. We've seen things like the ABC used to have a really thriving internship culture that was quite important. People like progressive Australian journalists and documentary filmmakers like David Bradbury and John Pilger. And a lot of that and those opportunities do not exist anymore due to, well, decades in some cases of government cuts to public broadcasting services. We're not seeing any support for the government for the arts. We've seen the arts being cut as well, which is another space where I guess content creators would seriously have gotten money from and a lot of other avenues like that.
3: Hmm. Thanks. Yeah, Zeb, I'm just wondering if uh, in your travels you've you've seen any kind of templates for how that uh, redistributive mm, model might work of of taxing Facebook and um, Google and... The Murdoch media, who famously a few years ago got given a giant refund and who don't pay hardly any tax. Um, have you, are you aware of any templates in other parts of the world where there is, um, public funding for, um, journalism and what that looks like?
0: Yeah, I think there's lots of things been explored at the moment. I mean, the first case, I think what we could be doing, as you're saying, is taxing Facebook, Google, and Murdoch. which famously doesn't pay any tax, as you said, and then actually funding public broadcasters like the ABC, for instance, and then the second part, BME mass funding in terms of things such as grants to content creators, community media organizations, and we can even explore things like funding like open source code development for the web and things like that and actually building platforms for us to be able to use on the web that are accountable to us and accountable to the people using them.
1: And um, yeah, I guess going into um, that kind of question, um, I guess what what is um, into what are some what are some of the things that, um, as well as kind of taxing the kind of big media companies, that the government could be doing to um, support independent not-for-profit journalism.
0: Yeah, hey, lots of things. I mean, the first would be good if it was able to access money for grants for things such as like. Even working in film we're seeing it's very difficult to get money if you want to make films, and a lot of grants that used to exist don't exist anymore. So that would be, I guess, one of the first things. And other things that would be interesting to explore is, for instance, setting up media centres, if you like, where people, which is funded through public funding, where people have access to skills, to training, and through equipment and through distribution channels to get their ideas out there. Because one of the big things and one of the issues I have with this bill is that it does nothing to diversify media or to allow marginalised voices to have it. Have a say, and part of that is requires access to resources, and part of that requires sort of distribution channels, and it doesn't do anything like that. So, I mean, that would be another part it could start, it could, the government could do as well if it generally wanted to support sort of diverse journalism. Yep.
3: Um, there's been suggestions from some quarters, including the Australia Institute and the Greens, that part of the solution to Uh, the monopolization of digital media and social media would be the creation of a public, publicly owned, um, Facebook and a publicly owned Google. Um, others on the left are not heaped into that as an approach. I'm wondering what's your view of that, uh, sort of way of trying to tackle the issue?
0: I think it's a very good discussion, but I think it's at a point where we need to be having a discussion about it. I think we do need social media platforms that are accountable to the people use them and to accountable to the public. And so I think setting up our own platforms would be a good thing to do. I mean, I think the question of how to, as some people have said, nationalise Facebook is a bit, it's quite complicated. They don't have the answers to when you're talking about a global corporation that both across the entire earth and started as a private corporation as well. So it's kind of, it's a difficult question, but I think we definitely need to be putting forward ideas on how do we build platforms that are accountable to us and looking at things like open source coding as one thing, but also, I guess, funding things publicly that are being created, things and so forth.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I guess I want to kind of hear, um, now that I guess this sort of media code has kind of been passed, um, it's, it's been kind of passed with amendments in the kind of context of um, basically, um, for example, Google has kind of made a number of deals with kind of Murdoch kind of press. Previously, they threatened to kind of withdraw their search engine from Australia. And also now Facebook um, has also now made a deal with the federal government in a sense that the federal government has implemented a number of kind of amendments that basically from my kind of understanding in terms of, um, and this has been the basis by which Facebook has restored news on its platform, from my understanding, just from reading the fine print, um, of course, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily understand every sort of aspect of how the, the amendment is passed, but my understanding is basically um, the government has made particular amendments that allows Facebook to have more of a, um, of a say in terms of the negotiations. Uh, for example, they're able to kind of make the argument that they bring value uh, to to, the, um, to this particular news publication because, i.e., Facebook can make the argument that, oh, yes, because your media company is listed on our site, um, you, can, you can basically... Um, um basically you shouldn't you shouldn't argue that we we should compensate you for for the for the journalism and then uh, and then on another angle i've heard that the actual members actually prevent um small publishers from kind of getting any kind of compensation from facebook but of course i'm kind of just hearing to hear your comments on some of those sort of issues um, especially in relation to what has been amended and what, um, and the deals that have kind of been made in the terms of this passing of this bill.
2: Yeah, you
0: know, I mean, I think the first thing to understand about this bill is that it's essentially looking at a fake corporate solution to the very real problem of journalist funding. So really what it's doing is it's just shuffling money around the top end of town, like Facebook, with a bit of money to Murdoch Media or. Because Murdoch Media is benefiting from using Facebook as a distribution platform for their content. But it's not really addressing any of the so-called issues. So that's the first thing to understand about this bill is that it's not a good solution and it's not actually addressing, you know, the problem of grassroots funding. I mean, one thing I think the process is quite revealing is both the tab that Murdoch and Facebook have where within a few months it went from face Murdoch pushing the government for this bill, the government writes an illogical piece of legislation that, for me, doesn't make sense, to be honest. I mean, you know, Facebook doesn't like them, and Facebook basically shuts down or disables large parts of its services in protest of the government, and then the government, within barely a week later, has already agreed to many of the amendments Facebook was pushing for. And, I mean, a lot of civil society groups in Australia don't quite have the ability to get concessions out of the government that quickly compared to Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg have. I mean, as far as the amendments go on, Facebook, the as one of the main Facebook people in Australia said, to paraphrase him, that Facebook both retains the ability to shut down or disable parts of Facebook, such as e sharing, and secondly, that Facebook could choose who it wants to enter into agreements with. So, I mean, that kind of feels to me like Facebook will have a lot of power over exactly what they'll want to be doing based on what they're saying. As far as what I think the direction of Facebook and Google is, I feel that they, and they have been entering into agreements with large media corporations, both in Australia, around, around Europe and Britain and other parts of the world. They're kind of setting themselves up to be, to kind of be their own newspaper, if you like, that's online, where they're the gatekeepers in controlling what news is online and what news isn't. They say they can I mean, Facebook were like, oh, it gives us the ability to support smaller independent media groups, but there's still no details of exactly how they will support smaller independent media groups, or if they will at all, when you're seeing all the details that they're making to put on their um, I guess their news feeds on Facebook uh, with major large media corporations.
1: Well, actually, you bring up a kind of very kind of interesting kind of um, element to this, because... Actually, just my kind of impression of what Facebook and Google have kind of successfully kind of done is they've actually in some sense, in the context of the Australian government pushing this kind of media code, there's a bit of a funny bit of irony, I think, because essentially what Google and Facebook, um, have opened up in the, over the course of these negotiations, because from my understanding, um, Google is launching a sort of, news sort of showcase um, sort of um, soft, um, thing as part of their services. There's, Google News has already kind of exists. Um, basically, if you go into Google, there's a news column which sort of gives you all the kind of headline kind of news, etc. And then I also noticed that Facebook um, – is potentially, I think Facebook has alluded that they're going to be launching um, Facebook News. So basically, it'll be in a sense like a separate, it'll be like part, my understanding, just because of how Facebook works, I presume it's going to work like there'll be a new column for Facebook called Facebook News. And then basically, it will have the same interface as Facebook, but it'll basically show a news feed that basically filters... um, that is basically exclusively that of news, and it will be kind of divided in kind of different kind of categories. And kind of what's interesting about that is potentially that leaves room for Facebook to basically say, well, if you want to get a privileged sort of position uh, to appear in our Facebook kind of news app more prominently, uh, you pay us um, pay us money. So basically, I think Facebook has almost seized on the opportunity actually to make more money off the off the news companies, whereas previously the likes of Murdoch um, Press were wanting to actually, wanting to actually have that negotiation be on their own terms. But actually, I think the, the amendments, the implication of some of these amendments is that Facebook can actually set, um, set this whole thing on their, set the negotiations on, on their terms and they have the bargaining power because a lot of people use Facebook to view news. Um, in fact, the majority of people, a lot, a good, large numbers of people use Facebook as essentially like a village um similar to how we use Google the internet etc i mean Facebook is the internet but yeah that's a, you get the point um yeah well, there's a sort of funny kind of implication there that Facebook has essentially been able to create um boost the opportunities to actually monetize their content and i think they're potentially using news and potential deals with news companies um, as, a, as a as way of doing, a vehicle for doing that.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, with the Facebook news, one thing is that I think so far it's been more a case of Facebook have been entering into agreements with Facebook paying media corporations like Murdoch News Corp all the way to, to Guardian and other groups to then show their stuff on their Facebook news feed. I mean, how it will work is a little bit, I don't know exactly where I mean. To me, it's not so much just the money question, it's also that it gives Facebook a chance to set the political narrative by selecting and filtering what news people are seeing, which they're already doing to some extent, but it can just increase it. So I think that's one of the things I'd be quite concerned about, to be honest.
1: Because it basically... um, Because right now, Facebook's sort of level of censorship has been centred around um, targeting kind of far-right extremism and misinformation. Of course, funny enough, they haven't necessarily been taking much action. They just had the sort of, there's just the hypothetical kind of um, notion that they will take action on it, although they, pre- they have taken action on some far right extreme kind of page. But there is this whole push for Facebook to kind of censor that kind of content. But of course, at the same time, um, the fact that they are such gatekeepers of news basically gives them will give them kind of like the opportunity if it's if it proves politically necessary for Facebook to also censor left-wing kind of publications and and so on and do you sort of see that as a, a really real possibility
0: uh, definitely there as a danger and I think it's quite dangerous to be calling for Facebook to be basically censoring or filtering out different things on a site, when it's like, who's going to make the final decision? It's going to be the majority shareholder, which is Mike Zuckerberg. It's not going to be by any kind of popular vote of users of a country or users of a service. So without talking about how those decisions are made democratically, I think it's really dangerous to have this push that Facebook should be filtering or censoring stuff when there's no real accountability over how they do it.
1: And um, maybe I'll quickly—we'll um, probably have to conclude, I guess, this interview. Do you have, any, I guess, any final comments you'd like to make about all the kind of things we've sort of
2: discussed?
0: I think the main thing is that we need to be putting forward more radical alternatives than what the current media bargaining, news media bargaining code is putting forward. Things like real funding for community media centres, for uh, community media projects, for independent journalists, for content creators. Uh, even developing our own sort of social media platforms that are run more democratically.
4: Hmm.
1: And, yeah, of course, also taxing um, Facebook and Google.
0: And, and of Murdoch. course, Murdoch <laughs> yeah. Press and Murdoch <laughs> Media
1: as well, who pay no, little no little to no tax. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, um, Zeb. I think this has been, I guess, a very kind of useful kind of discussion, especially in the context of giving that where... Um, airing from FreeCR kind of community radio, um, and community radio is also kind of an important kind of bastion of sort of putting forward independent um, media um, that's free from corporate influence and so on.
3: Yeah, cheers, Zeb. Yeah, thank you. All right. Zebedee Parks there who is a uh, regular writer and reporter and filmmaker for Green Left, uh, based in Sydney town. All right. We are going to play an announcement, and then we've got some more news and interviews coming up. You're on 3CR. All
1: Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
3: Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call
1: 0434 136 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR
3: supporter.
1: Everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in.
3: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food not bombs is a 3CR supporter. We can play.
1: Okay. You're listening to Green Left Radio and on the line we have our second interview for the program, um, Avsara, um, Santarantham, if I'm um, got her last name correctly. Summer, um, hi, yeah, uh, uh, hi, Jacob. Um, so just to give a bit of an introduction to Absar first before I um, ask the kind of first question. Um, Absar has been heavily involved um, in the refugee rights campaign, especially around the campaign um, to free the imprisoned refugees. Um, who, there's at least 12 refugees who are still currently kind of imprisoned uh, in the Park Hotel. But also, Apsara has also been doing a lot of campaigning around building local council support um, for these refugees, especially in the Melbourne City Council, but also has been raising the kind of issue of the... because refi- a number of refugees have been freed from the Park Hotel. Apsara has also been campaigning, I guess, on the issue of what is the government doing around supporting these refugees, and she has been organising kind of daily or weekly kind of protests outside the Premier's office basically um, making the kind of demands around supporting these refugees from like, say, giving them basic goods and, um, and support, etc. Um, so yeah, good morning, Absara.
2: Hi, Jennico, how are you?
1: Yeah, so I guess, um, um, I guess I want to sort of hear from you maybe just to give put everything I guess in context, what I guess is the current kind of situation for the refugees who have both been kind of recently released and who are currently kind of imprisoned in the Park Hotel? So I'll start
2: off with uh, the refugees who have recently been released and then uh, go back and talk about the people who are locked in, in the Park Hotel. So there was 63 people who were released uh, in late January and um, of the people that were released, they, what they were given was $307 and between three weeks uh, paid accommodation by the federal government and literally thrown out fence themselves. Um, these uh, recently refi- released refugees did not have access to Sika seeker. Um, they don't have any access to training, um, so like, you cannot go and do uh, a certificate or diploma. You can do, um, that might be very much job specific. So, for example, you can do a white card if you are going to work in construction, uh, but you won't be able to access any other qualifications that might be required, for example, to drive a forklift or things like that. Also, the refugees have been released on a uh, six-month um, visa that they have to renew because they're on what is called the final departure bridging visa, So, which again means that their life is incredibly precarious because um, they need to make sure that they are able to um, do the right thing so that they can uh, renew their visa. So there's always something hanging over the head. In relation to the uh, 13 men that are still locked in... Um, The Park Hotel, and then there's also about 22 in Maita. Uh, There's no news about uh, what's happening to them. Um, They continue to be locked uh, arbitrarily and uh, indefinitely. And of course, that is uh, creating a huge uh, issue for a lot of the people because it's it's a sense of why is it that a certain group of people got released whilst they're still locked there. No one knows the reasons why um, the 63 men uh, people were released into the community and why um, the 32 people are still locked in detention.
1: And what can you tell us? You've been very involved in trying to kind of put pressure, I guess, on the Melbourne City Council because the Park Hotel resides in the electorate um that the Melbourne City Council um has certain jurisdiction over um and they had kind of recently passed a very kind of watered down motion on supporting yep. kind of these ref- um these refugees who are currently imprisoned in the Park Hotel and I guess what can you guess tell us about what the Melbourne City Council voted on and what has the grassroots response been to it
2: Uh, Yes. So uh, I also want to contrast uh, Melbourne City Council's uh, actions with that of a previous council that the the APOD or the hotel that the men were living in was in. So the first council was Darabin and the second is Melbourne City Council, as you just said. In Darabin, um, the response by the councillors was in stark contrast to the City of Melbourne. Um, Councillors uh, passed a motion uh, in support of... The men, and um, uh, so therefore, uh, councillors were able to advocate um, on the behalf of the men and condemn the federal government for setting up an alternative place of detention in the council. So I want to be very clear: councils cannot um, remove or cannot forcibly remove the uh, um, an alternative place of detention um, that a government, the federal government, has chosen, but they can condemn it. So they can condemn the setup of the uh, of the uh, apod and they can also uh, condemn the uh, gross human rights violation that is occurring in their council what melbourne council um, opted to do was rather than taking similar measures as the Darwin council did was to win a motion and really uh, what they want to do is they want to advocate for the provision of medical and mental health um, services to the men that are still locked in the hotel. And rather than advocating for the men, they want to seek an explanation for the continued detention of these men um, in the hotel and find out more about their cases. That doesn't go far enough. As the city council, that is supposed to be a refugee welcome zone, uh, There need to be much stronger um to be standing up for what is. And there is no debate about this: um, the gross violation of the human rights of these men.
1: Hmm. And in terms, in terms of like the Melbourne kind of city, kind of council, kind of response, um, what has I guess. Just wanted to find out what ha- what are we um, is there any sort of grassroots response in terms of actually trying to push the Melbourne City Council to have a better position or can um, actually reviewing the fact that they took such a terrible position.
2: Yes, so we've actually created a pro forma email, and uh, which I can share with you. And the pro forma email is um, uh, condemning uh, the m- uh, uh, motion condemning uh, the fact that a number of the councillors were unwilling to take a leadership position. Because I do want to be clear that uh, five uh, voted for the stronger original motion, six voted against. So it's condemning the six who voted against, but also recognising that whilst um, the new motion is a a watered-out version of the original, It does actually require the City Council to take some action. So we are actually um, in the email asking the City Council to um, state what actions they have taken in relation to to, two of the um, subsections of the uh, motions, which is 1.3 and 1.4, because Yes, it's great to pass that motion, but now we also need to see the actions that the council is taking. So I would love it if um, your listeners uh, are able to uh, get the pro forma email. Of course, they can amend it if they want to, but to send the email, and we've provided all the email addresses as well of all the councillors to find out from them what actions the council is actually taking.
1: Yeah, so just for our listeners information, um, I'm Sorry has provided me kind of that information. So it will be posted on, um, the Green Left Radio kind of Facebook page. Um, and then of course we'll try and post it on what other, any other kind of platforms, um, including passing it on to FreeCR and so on. So. I guess the kind of next kind of question I want to go into, Absara, is you've been organizing I guess weekly protests um outside Daniel kind of Andrew's sort of office in Treasury kind of gardens yes. and and especially around the kind of issue of supporting um the recently kind of released um Medirak refugees who are imprisoned mm-hmm. in the park hotel in Mitre. Um mm-hmm. what can you tell us about what do you in terms of this these protests, what do you think that the state government um, should be doing, and what are you demanding that the state government should be doing in response to these recently released refugees in terms of giving them support within the community? Uh, so, yes,
2: uh, recognising again, just like uh, the local government, state government uh, cannot intervene in the setup of an APOT, but can actually speak up uh, against the. Uh, the human rights violations of these people and remembering that victoria is one of the states and territories that has actually signed on to the human rights charter which if you actually read the charter it says um, the charter needs to respect the fundamental values of freedom equality respect and dignity a right i don't think that has been afforded to the people locked in immigration detention here in victoria and what we are really talking about as well, and uh, I'd like to also, uh, draw your attention to, is that in the state of Victoria, there's about 50 uh, refugees living in our community who are on very similar punitive visas as the ones that recently re- released refugees are on, which is the um, final departure bridging visa. And these people have been living on these visas for years now. So in some cases you know, for uh, half a decade. So where Dan Andrews can obviously uh, play a role is that the state government, for example, is um, has the jurisdiction uh, for building public housing, something that they have not been doing for uh, a couple of decades now. So definitely secure housing is one area that um, refugees um, can uh, and should be able to access. The other thing is things like public transport. Um, public transport is, again, a state jurisdiction. Um, knowing that these people are living on the breadline, providing them with access to free public transport will be something that would also help them uh, in a major way. And it's actually really important for ensuring that they can actually live dignified lives in our state because very soon the moratorium on rent is going to be um, removed and what this is going to mean for a lot of refugees who literally do not have access to job seekers and those refugees who have been living in our community for half a decade, for example, um, don't even have access to job if they had a job and lost that job, is that they are going to make themselves on the streets as well. So remembering that the state government does have um, certain jurisdictions that they can actually operate within um, Whilst they cannot do everything, we really require the federal government to um, not abdicate its responsibility. State governments can step in when there's a void.
1: Hmm. Well, thanks. Um, uh, Zane had just a quick question.
3: Yeah, so I, I saw you at the, um, the speak out at uh, the trial of uh, Chris Breen, and I was just wondering if you could comment on the way in which... Uh, the lockdown and, and COVID measures and special laws have been used uh, arguably inappropriately to try and stifle and, and stop refugee campaigns over the last 12 months or so? Oh,
2: definitely. Hi, ben, definitely I, I agree with you. Um, uh, COVID laws have, uh, have been used uh, arbitrary by the police in order to... Uh, to quell any kind of protest. I mean, we know that, um, of course, what's happening with Chris, uh, which was from uh, uh, April last year, is a real travesty because the fact is that uh, since then, um, many of the uh, people who apparently broke COVID restrictions and had signs, um, they had a sign amnesty and those signs were lifted. But it's really convenient how... Uh, Victoria Police chose not to lift the fines for Chris and a number of other refugee protesters. Uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of months, where um, there's been a lot more active refugee actions, um, there's been a lot of pressure as well from Victoria Police of uh, activists and organisers. Um, I can, uh, I know for sure for myself uh, when we organised actions outside um, Dan Andrews' office. We were, uh, the Victoria Police used City of Melbourne officials to, um, to, uh, issue us with a notice to comply. Um, we been, when we were protesting outside the Australian Open, tennis, police were giving us, um, uh, directions to move, which was effectively saying that we could not stand outside the Australian Open on a public space and hand out leaflets, so, And this happened for a whole week where they, we literally were playing a cat and mouse game with the police who were trying to push us off a public land there. And um, I know that... Even as thousands
3: period, of people stream in to watch the tennis?
2: That's correct. Um, <laughs> even though there were thousands of people coming in to watch the tennis, uh, the police were not willing to have us stand there. So literally we had to get... Um, a uh, legal advice about our right to stand there and um, protest and hand out leaflets, and only when we uh, did receive that legal advice did the police back off on that. And I heard that in um, the protest last Saturday, um, police were enforcing uh, 20-person um, bu- uh, bubbles, so like literally when they were when the protest organizers were marching from. State Library to the Park Hotel. Um, they had to break into groups of twenty and um, and uh, march down to the Park Hotel. So again, um, all of this is being done quite deliberately. Of course, the COVID is an issue, and I completely agree that we need to be careful. But it's really interesting uh, how it's being arbitrarily used um, on people who are protesting in relation to uh, refugee issues and. It'll be interesting to see what happens at the valley this Friday that's coming because it's on the same weekend as Moomba. And I know Moomba has has been given the green light. So it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, Victoria Police again in an arbitrary manner um, in relation to this uh, upcoming protest.
1: I mean, the interesting thing about the Moomba kind of festival is that it's always been the kind of subject of kind of very kind of racialized kind of policing by the Victorian police. Um and of course there's the whole held sun sort of scare campaign that always goes on every time the Moomba kind of festival go um happens um about so called African gangs, etc. Which is obviously all racist. Um uh-huh. and I guess the next... but that's actually a side point. The next kind of point I wanted to kind of get into um you just mentioned, I guess, the March fifth kind of pro- national day of action, and okay. um, yeah, you've, you're, you're part of um, organising and initiating with various sort of groups and individuals, especially we working with the people who have been organising the daily protests um, every day at outside the Park Hotel. What can you, mm-hmm. I guess, tell us about this pro- um, upcoming protest? Yes, yeah, so I'm
2: actually not um, playing a very big role in the. Uh, or nothing itself, but well, I'm just helping out with leafleting and things like. That. But I do know a little bit about the process. So um, the action is a national action. So we are calling um, on during the weekend uh, action around uh, all uh, all cities where there are eight, um, all immigration detention centres, onshore uh, immigration detention centres, and it's um, the we're getting speak. Are uh, either uh, currently detained in, the, um, in our immigration, uh, refugee immigration detention system, or um, ex-detainees to talk about uh, the experiences of being locked up, but also uh, talk a little bit about their experiences of um, being out. And we will be recording a speech from uh, Barouz Bichani, and he'll be. Uh, we'll be able to play that. At every single one of the rallies across the country.
1: Mm. And what can you, I guess tell us um, the details for this protest? And um, such um, like in terms of like when it's happening and when.
2: Yes, so it's going to be on the fifth of March, uh, this Friday that's um, uh, coming, and it'll be at six pm outside the State Library of Victoria. And then after a couple of speeches, um, they will. Uh, the, the organisers
1: are intending to march to the park hotel. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I'm sorry. Um, I guess now we'll go conclude this interview. Do you have any, guests' guess, final comments to make? And also maybe talk about, like, you know, are there any... What are some of the ways that we can support, um, because you've been involved in so much different aspects of campaign for refugees? Um
4: yeah.
1: Can you tell us also what what can people kind of do um, in terms of supporting the refugees, especially in terms of the protest, um, et cetera?
2: Yes. So I think, you know, obviously uh, coming to protest is very important and going to the park hotel is really important. But I also know capacity is an issue for lots of people. So... Um, I've shared with you already, and I hope um, your listeners will be able to get that information as well. Is you know, emailing the city council, emailing um, or Dan Andrews' office, emailing. Uh, we've also created a pro forma email for um, that you can send to LNP MPs and senators, and uh, we've got contact point numbers as well because you can call them too, and. Other things you can also do, of course, is donations. I mean, as you can see here, there are 6,000 people living in the community that are struggling. Um, a lot of them will need money. Um, our governments are not uh, providing the support that they need. And the other things that you can do is all really these sign petitions and uh, and deliver leaflets and pamphlets um, in people's houses as well which provide them with information about things that they can do so we've created a really um, simple flyer with uh, information on the front a checklist on the back and even a qr code that can take you to uh, a whole range of documents that you can actually use and one final thing is if we are in a union we've also created a motion a sample motion a motion that was passed through the ntu so Two unions have now actually endorsed um, the refugee advocacy work, and that is the NTU and AU, but we need more unions to come on board as well.
1: All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, um, I'm sorry, And, um, yeah, just for our listeners' information, the next major refugee kind of protest is going to be at on March 5th, 6pm um, at the State Library. And also just to note... Um, Shortly after this program has been aired, I will be posting uh, the kind of material that Absare has provided in terms of the Melbourne City Council um, stuff.
2: Thank you so much to both of you.
3: Cheers, Absarie. Keep up the good work, Comrade.
2: Definitely. Take care. Right. Thanks, Absara. Bye.
1: Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio and we are just interviewing um, Absara uh, about um, all the kind of different sort of things she's been involved in in terms of the refugee rights campaign. Now, I'm just going to go, I will play, I guess, a quick announcement and then we'll be going on to the Green Left Activist Calendar. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treat with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying
2: our sacred sites.
4: War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons.
2: Subscribe to
1: 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change.
2: And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't.
4: Feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe
1: or call the station on 9419
3: 8377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. All right,
1: you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Now, the kind of first kind of event I want to advertise is this Friday on February 26th, well today, um, there's going to be a uh, refugee protest, um, the Freedom Fridays, organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism at 5 p.m. outside the Park Hotel, or it might be six. Yeah, it's either 5 or 6 p.m. I keep forgetting the kind of rough kind of details. Um, and then the kind of next kind of thing I want to mention is on Tuesday, March second. Um, there's going to be a webinar on climate change and human health. So if you search on Facebook, climate change and human health, you'll get the kind of link to the webinar. And then on March the fifth, um, there is going to be the Pro- Refugee Right National Day of Action um, for the um, for the refugees' um, protest that has been organised by the Daily protests in the Park and also um, supported by various kind of different groups. This is the same protest we we're interviewing Absar about, um, which is going to be happening. It's it's going to be happening at five pm March the fifth at what well, six sorry six pm March. Friday, March the 5th, um, at the State Library. Um, Then the next um, event, there is going to be a rally and march um, for International Women's Day at 2pm outside the um, Parliament House. And this is obviously during the Labor Day kind of weekend, so it will be a a public holiday. Then on Tuesday, um, March the 9th, um, there's going to be an online forum why Capitalism Needs Sexism, and that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, and it's being hosted um, uh, by Green Left and Social Science. It's going to be um, available to attend both in person and over Zoom, and if you'd like to attend in person um, in turn, because of capacity limits because of COVID, RSVP to 0458958385.
3: Is Sarah going to be speaking at that?
1: Oh, I haven't re- no, I haven't really got the speakers.
3: Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yet. cool, cool. All right. Yeah, because we're interviewing Sarah Hathaway next Friday. I thought yep. maybe she'll be speaking at that, but that remains to be seen. Yep.
1: And then the next, um, the next kind of event um, is there's going to be a um, on the same day there's going to be a film screening of Woman of Steel on Tuesday, March 9th at six forty five p.m. at the Cinema Nova. And then the next event um, I want to promote, there is going to be a Baruz Boshani sort of concert around, um, No Friend But the Mountains, a symbolic song cycle. So that's happening at 5pm at the Maya Music Bowl. So I think search that up and you'll be able to get the kind of details. And then from Monday, March the 22nd to Sunday, March the 28th, there's going to be a client action, mass march disruption. And then one, actually, one event I sort of just forgot to sort of mention, just let me get the details for it, because um, it just didn't seem to be listed here. Um, on Friday the 19th of... No, I think it's a... Sorry. So let me get this event. It's a climate protest. I think it's kind of important for so me quickly get the details. Um, uni Students for Climate Justice are organising a protest as part of the Fridays for the Future. Yep, at Friday... Uh, March the 19th at 2pm. So that's going to be uh, a client protest on Friday, March 19th, and then followed by that, there'll be the XR Client Action Mass March Disruption. Then the next event um, I'd like to announce is there'll be the 30 Years of Green Left, an online event to help mark Green Left's 30th anniversary, and that's going to be happening on Saturday, March 27th um, at 7pm, um, at, and it's going to be held, um, via Zoom. And if you go on the greenleft.org.au website, you can get details on how to book. And then lastly, although I think I actually forgot to mention one event, I'll leave it to Zane to potentially, um, to mention because I think he knows about it. Um, there's going to be, uh, so just the last event I was going to sort of read out is the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees is going to be happening on Sunday, March the 28th at 2 p.m. at the State Library.
3: Yes, and tomorrow, the Renters and Housing Union is holding a um, a protest or a picket. Uh, it's at 49 Newman Street, Thornbury, and it's at 12 noon, and it's Keep Louise Home. Uh, Louise Good is a 65-year-old local Thornbury neighbour who was forcibly evicted from her home of 29 years. Louise made her home as part of a housing cooperative to provide long-term affordable housing to people in need. Last Tuesday, the community housing company Common Equity Housing Limited contracted a security guard and fencing company to install fencing around Louise's home. Louise has been forced into homelessness. So there's a protest there to, uh yeah... Defend Louise's right to, uh, stay in her house and not get kicked out. Uh, so yeah, if, if you're able to head along to that, it's a covered, safe event. Uh, there'll be hand sanitizer, masks and, uh, water provided. So that's, uh, from 12 noon tomorrow at 49 Newman Street, Thornbury. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, that should be, uh, I think, a very important event to support. And essentially, I think it really, and this is something we've kind of discussed kind of regularly on our program, it really kind of shows um, the inadequacy of community housing. Um, because community housing is often sort of put forward as like an alternative to public housing. But actually, what we actually need is actually public housing because public housing actually guarantees security of tenure. Whereas in community housing, it has situations where people can be evicted. Okay. Well, now I'm just going to go play a quick, um, just going to play a quick announcement. Um, just getting, won't, no. Okay, I'll just be play playing I'll play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll be going to the next part of our programme.
4: delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q it seems and now everything else I mean now it's just a six month pipeline from that to Australians who who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time so it's ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating you know I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie she might not be that far right wing now But she might be quite left She might just be a spiritual hippie type But there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings There's almost a hippie-like quality to it Particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of of traditional Q And it's getting people in there But Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months So your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now
0: You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
1: Alright, you are listening to Green Left Radio and um, we now have our third guest on the program today. Um, we have Paz Forgani, um, who has actually been a regular on our program. Uh, Paz um, is part of the Anti-Poverty Network um, South Australia and has previously been uh, the coordinator of the Anti-Poverty Network. He was also part of the Australian Council of Social Services and was there, um, was part of, it's been a long time campaigner around raising the rate, i.e. the kind of job seeker rate. Um, so now we have, um, Paz on because the federal government has made a kind of like a recent announcement. Uh, they've announced that they're going to be legislating the first increase, um, to job seeker in years, um, because job seeker has not been increased in any real terms. However, in the context of everything, (laughs) This, the, um, the, the the increase is really completely insufficient so we're going to be having a discussion about Paz about all the dynamics of that so good morning Paz.
5: Good morning Jacob
1: okay so I guess the first kind of question is I guess what I want to kind of hear your comments on what this job seeker increase actually is and how what why it's completely in, insufficient.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, completely insufficient might be, uh, putting it kindly, I'll, I'll use words like cruel, insulting, um, pathetic. The, the increase, um, which is not really like an increase, I'll get to that in a second, um, am like amounts to just under $4 a day or 25 bucks a week. So to put things in perspective, um, pre-COVID, you know, this time last year, Job seeker, as we all remember, was you know forty bucks a day. With this increase um, that has just been announced a few days ago, job seeker would go up to um, forty-four bucks a day. So it is uh, a pretty disgraceful um, announcement. It almost feels like it mocks you know the needs of the you know one point five million like unemployed people who even right now before this. Before this comes into effect, even right now, these people are uh, struggling uh, to look after their health and look after their finances. And we say like increase, but in fact, it's not an increase. It's $50 a week less than what people on Jobseeker are receiving as of today. Um, and and um, you know when this uh, when this so-called increase is legislated, which I assume it will be because it looks like the Labour Party are going to waive it. Um, through, it'll leave job seeker not only on just forty-four bucks a day, but over two hundred dollars a week on below the poverty line. So, not only is it um, like insufficient, but uh, it's vicious. You, you know, it, it ignores the real hardship, the real suffering that that I think at this point, just about the whole country is aware of, like including, of course, the government. They've chosen. Uh, to prioritise other things, um, like ahead of you know people in this country, you know being able to afford meals and medicines and keep a roof over their head.
1: Yeah. So one interesting thing to note is, obviously in the in the years of this of the kind of raise the rate kind of campaigning by groups like the Anti Poverty Network um and unemployed workers union um have um always been calling for a very a much more substantial increase to uh to job seeker which was formerly known as Newstart. And of course that's that's kind of always existed. But then there's also been charity organisations and social services organisations who have actually been demanding that the government raise the job seeker rate to be above the kind of poverty line but also most kind of interestingly there's also been some business councils who are not necessarily our allies Um, and in fact a lot of the a lot of these business councils represent businesses that are completely complicit in the exploitation of workers uh, and so on but even some of those kind of political forces have been Calling for a much more substantial increase than what the federal government is actually doing, um, and especially also interested in kind of hearing um, w- what is the actual response to the Labor Party issue. So, anyway, this is a bit of a comp- uh, this question kind of goes into all sorts of different things, but I kind of want to hear kind of your comments on all those sort of things.
5: Yeah, it is i think like, it's unusual. Um, to find an issue where you get such a wide um, consensus, um, you know, a consensus involving, you know, like activist groups, uh, charity and NGO organizations, um, business groups. So I think that's just a reflection of, like, how low job seeker slash new start has been, um, like how long it's been since the last um, permanent raise, you are not including the the COVID supplement, which is obviously temporary, as we found out, 27 years. 27 years was the last time that there was a permanent raise um, to what was then called New Start. Um, of course, you know there are big differences of opinion in terms of how big the raise ought to be, but no one, no one was calling for a for a 25 a week raise. Um, not even. I should say the, the business groups like the Business Council of Australia and the, and the Small Business Council, even they were uh, calling for a much substantial increase. Um, then this, um, um, for grassroots organizations like the Anti-Provy Network and the Unemployed Workers Union, you know, our views are informed by the people living it, by people on, you know, Job Seeker and youth allowance and other payments. Our position is actually really, really simple, Jacob. You know, no one should be living uh, below the poverty line. Um, and actually the rate that job seeker was during, um, COVID, which was 80 bucks a day or 5.50 a week. That's when, you know, the government basically doubled the payment and, and like introduced, under um, the supplement. That rate could have been made permanent. And that's, that's exactly what we've been, what we've been um, calling for. You know, the government, um, clicked its fingers. Its fingers and and uh, you know, millions of people were lifted above the poverty line. Um, in some cases, you know, uh, for the first time in years. Some cases for the first time in their lives. And we saw, you know, extraordinary stories of you know people being able to rebuild their health, but you know, using that extra money to flee um, violence and relationships, and you know, being able to move out of their parents' garage, and you know, being able to get laptops for their school children so that they can do their homework. So. That was our position, you know. The government showed how easily and how quickly it could get rid of poverty. And it could have made that, like, like it could have made that rate, you know, 80 bucks a day, 5.50 a week permanent. Of course, we wanted pensioners and carers and to be lifted up and, and obviously migrant workers and students who get no income support at all. But the government has also shown how easily and quickly it can plunge people back into poverty. Now as for the Labour Party, well, Giving us mixed um, signals, as is often the case. Um, a couple of days ago, they voted for a Greens motion in the Senate. I uh, 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 put up by Senator Rachel Seward, calling for job seekers to be listed back above the poverty line. Um, like, however, we—it's um, been reported yesterday that Labor you know, will support the 25 a week increase which as we know is not actually like an increase it's a 50 or a week cut from where we are at now but currently it's looking like um, this you know pathetic uh, measly increase will go through um, Parliament with labors of support um, but of course it's never too late the the legislation will not be debated till, um mid-march so there certainly is you know some time to to put pressure on labor to to grow a spine and actually um, come out and play hardball and work with the independents to try to negotiate like a bigger raise. All of that is possible, but, you know, we'll take, we'll take you know, concerted community pressure from all of us.
3: Um, Past one of the um, arguments that was um, raised sort of at the height of the pandemic was that at $80 a day, there is a disincentive for people on Job Seeker to accept uh, basically low-paid jobs. I'm wondering if you can respond to that idea.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I always, I always thought that was a rubbish argument. I mean, I mean, like a few things. I mean, first worth noted, worth noting that we, even when Job Seeker was was um, five fifty a week, it was still roughly. $240 a week um, below the full time minimum wage so you know there was still a a, a gap a discrepancy there um, and that means that I mean people people on job seeker at that rate you know would always derive some financial benefit from from you know being in paid work if they can find it you know which is always a big if you know, particularly at at the moment the way our Uh, The way the sentencing system works is that, uh, I mean, your payment, you know, gradually goes down as you get more and more paid hours of work. So, you know, the the disincentive argument is rubbish because you know you're always better off financially from like paid work. The other uh, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, if if when you lift up unemployed people and get them to a point where they're not I'm like, oh, well, they can eat more than once a day where they're not under constant pressure, where they're not, you know, going to sleep every night, you know, fretting about how they've got to, you know, cope the next day. And if, when you do that, there are certain kinds of jobs that become harder to fill, well, maybe that's an incentive for, you know, businesses. Let's look at the fact that there are some, you know, really low-paid, unpleasant jobs out there that ought to be, that ought to be redesigned. The fact is that there are some, you know, really, really awful jobs out there, and and if the only way to fill those jobs is to have people in grinding poverty who are going to bed hungry, who who can't afford medication, whose mental health is being smashed, well, I say, you know, I mean, those jobs
4: ought not to exist. Mm. Or, or, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if...
5: You know, if businesses um, need to fill those jobs, well, you know, they ought to look at, at at our conditions and pay. I mean, we talk about incentives for the unemployed to go out and work, but we never talk about incentives for you know businesses to design you know less less horrid and less exploitative and less unsafe jobs. So um, that argument's rubbish. And also worth worth noting that actually there's a, there's no evidence that there's a relationship between the level. Of like unemployment payments and the rate of unemployment. In fact, if anything, um, the relationship seems to be in the OECD that countries with higher, uh, unlike unemployment um, payments, those countries tend to have lower rates of unemployment. Mm. Um, so the evidence is actually very very weak. But of course, this is the argument that keeps coming out over and over again. You know, you get a cafe owner in Bundaberg who says that they can't they can't find people to work for them. Then you find out that they're Pay rates barely minimum wage, and they're only offering you know ten hours a week, and that's obviously not a not a livable income. So you kind of look into the detail, and you find out, well, okay, these jobs that aren't being filled, let's actually have a look at the conditions and pay. And what you find out is that they're they're atrocious jobs, and we couldn't possibly blame anyone who says, no, I'm to a job that's going to leave them in poverty, that's going to damage their health, that's, you know really unsociable hours, jobs that they can't possibly do, because they don't actually have the money to be able to, you know, move out to to the regions, you know, say in the case of, you know, fruit picking jobs or let alone the fact that, you know, like half of unemployed people like are over the age of 45 and we have a growing number of people um, who are like unemployed who've got a diagnose and disability. So I wouldn't ask those people to pick fruit. I mean, that's hard work even for people who are like able-bodied. Hmm. Yeah.
1: And I think just one last kind of thing Um is I just want to kind of quickly we've got to tight um, resolve this um, we've got to tight um, conclude this interview soon because we're running out of time and we're getting to the end of the um, the programme. I just want to quickly hear a quick comment from you on part of the new job seeker changes is this new implementation of a new system which they're not calling it this but we'll refer it to as Job Seeker which basically gives um, employees Well, basically if an employer offers someone on Job Seeker a job, um, and that said person declines the job. The said employer now has the ability to dob that person into Centrelink to potentially get their payment
5: suspended. Yeah, I mean, nasty, nasty garbage. Worth worth noting that you know this proposal was so stupid, so ideological that actually even even like employer groups come out and said like, look, we're not going to. Uh, we're not going to use this, we're not going to have, like, anything to do with this, you know, um, like idiotic hotline. I mean, it is, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why people might refuse jobs, you know, reasons them to do their health and their safety, and I'm feeling like the culture of an organisation is not right for them. Um, I mean, penalising those people is, it is cruel. It gives um, bosses more power to drive down wages and conditions. You can imagine a situation where, like during a strike, um, you know, people who are hired on as scabs are in a position where they cannot say a no to being a scab, which I think is like an awful position for someone to be in. You can imagine situations where um, bosses who are um, are, like harassing their like employees are in a position where they could potentially use this hotline to, uh, to like intimidate people into you know, like accepting, you know, very, very um, shoddy jobs um, with them. So, yeah, this is this is really, really awful stuff. And unfortunately, it's looking like Labor is going to oppose uh, this hotline. So I think there's a fair chance that it won't actually be legislated.
1: OK, well, we've got to um, conclude this interview kind of now. Do you kind of have, like, final comments to kind of make on how people can support um, the efforts of a- um, anti-poverty campaigners and Putting pressure on the government to raise the rate.
5: Yes, uh, there's a national week of action, March 15 to March 19. Um, there are events happening all over the country. This is being hosted by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, um, Get Up, Life, the Living Incomes, um, for Everyone Coalition. There's stuff um, online and and on Facebook. So please, please go and um, check it out. And of course, in the meantime, you know, those of you who have time and energy, you know. Uh, contact uh, the coalition, and in particular, you know, um, contact the Labour Party. Um, tell them, you know, to, to grow a spine and come out and say that this increase is pathetic, and get Labour to try and fight for for uh, um, for something less meagre. But yeah, March 15 to March 19, National Week of Action. There's activities happening all over the country. Look it up.
1: All right. Thank you very much, I'm Paz. Anyway, we've got She's to best. quickly um, resolve. Um, thanks for being on the program.
5: No worries.
1: All right. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 8.28 a.m. like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, and we'll all see you next week. And also stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. You're listening you to week. Green Left Radio on 3CR.
4: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people
2: and planet before profit.
1: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au/slash support or free call 1 800 634 206. Arise, you workers from this
3: slumbers, arise, you prisoners of want. Reason in revolt now thunders and it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Servile masses arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.